We want to make sure that people understand that, hey, security is our North Star. Security is something that's, you know, not just incredibly important to us, but it is the most important thing to this product. And when you buy an every key product, you're buying something incredibly secure that has been security audited and that's using, you know, the best encryption and the best security standards that are available. Yeah, it really just kind of comes down to just all of that, all of the, all of the process of building uh, something that you're really proud of. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the pleasure of speaking with Chris Wentz, the founder and CEO of EveryKey. Chris has always had a passion for entrepreneurship, founding an advertising network in middle school that grew into one of the largest video game advertising networks. He then started a consumer electronics resale business in college where he bought products that were only available in the U.S. and sold them to customers in other countries. He also modified the Roomba robotic vacuum cleaner to make it a better product and sold the improved Roombas to consumers. The improvements were so popular that Roomba implemented the features into their own product in the next product line. While finishing his BS in computer science at Case Western Reserve University, Chris invested the money he had made from his previous business ventures into EveryKey, which is what we spend most of our conversation on here today. EveryKey designs and builds a patented universal smart key that can unlock devices and log into online accounts on those devices. It ultimately replaces your passwords and your keys. Launched on Kickstarter in October of 2014, within 48 hours, the campaign had reached trending status and raised over $25,000 in pre-orders. Since then, EveryKey has grown substantially, expanding its capabilities and offerings to the enterprise security space. And I very much enjoyed hearing the story of how Chris took EveryKey from an idea at his Case Western entrepreneurship class to a leading cybersecurity company providing products and services to consumers, enterprise, and governments alike with a real deep commitment to brand. Please enjoy my conversation with Chris Wentz. I've been looking forward to, to this conversation. I remember seeing your product actually for the first time at a conference a few years ago. And at the time, I was a pretty deep in the election and voting infrastructure industry. And I specifically recall your product in this context because I had just come from a conference before this conference where all the state secretaries of state meet up. And th those are the folks who are responsible for, for running our political elections. And there was this presentation that the Colorado Secretary of State gave to the rest of the secretaries of state uh, on the importance of two-factor authentication. Uh, um, which, which I which I remember was quite alarming uh, for me to see. For one, the degree to which those who are tasked with running our state and federal elections weren't fully tuned into the importance of multi-factor authentication. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember then immediately grasping the value of a product like EveryKey, and so it just it clicked very quickly for me. Uh, I remember in that context. But in any case, very excited to to dive into all of that that with you and and your journey to get there. Yeah, absolutely. Thank thank you for having me here, Jeff. I uh, really appreciate this. And uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's over $2 trillion lost every year due to password mismanagement. Two-factor authentication is uh, becoming a requirement and really a standard out there. So glad that we're both on board with that. <laughs> yeah, and, and we'll get to, to every key, but I, I want to I start actually with your your path to entrepreneurship. I know every key wasn't necessarily your first rodeo and you've had kind of a, a few goes at, at building a company going through the startup motions. And, you know, I'm curious what, what drew you uh, to entrepreneurship and I'd love to, to kind of hear the stories of a few of the, the companies that, that came first. Yeah, yeah. So I was a big video gamer growing up back in like elementary, middle school or whatever. Played a lot of Halo and Call of Duty and got pretty competitive into it and started to create some businesses or like a kind of mini businesses around uh, these video games. So we started an advertising network. Well, I guess before that, we started a tournament website where we would uh, match gamers with each other to kind of play competitively against each other. Maybe there'd be a small prize pool for the winners and maybe some small entry fees to 
even entered to begin with. And uh, I kind of took that idea, ended up creating an advertising network where people within the video game Halo could kind of promote their custom content, custom maps, custom uh, game types, different things like that that they wanted to promote and get more downloads on. They could promote that through our ad network and those ads would then get displayed on Halo-related websites. So got really interested in kind of the business side of that. You know, I started off sort of on the tech nerd side, just, you know, just geeking out over uh, programming these websites and making them look really cool and uh, kind of following the branding (laughs) that the video game publishers would have. So our ad Halo kind of looked similar to the Halo, uh, you know, branding and everything and loved that aspect of it, but then really got into the business side as well and loved kind of building my own brand and building, uh, building my own business and uh, creating something that really adds value to the world. I think that's kind of where it uh, comes down to is like solving a problem for people. Yeah. And I, I know there was a, a subsequent project you worked on uh, related to, to Roombas um, yep. and I, I'd love to hear the the story of that. <laughs> yeah, so while I was in college, I I bought a Roomba robotic vacuum cleaner to be able to because uh, I was a lazy college student didn't want to vacuum my own dorm room, <laughs> wanted to have a robot do it for me, <laughs> and so I bought this Roomba. Um, it immediately broke, like probably a month or two after I got the darn thing. Uh, it stopped working, and I found out the reason it stopped working was because there was like dust and debris getting inside this gearbox that kind of spins the brushes to to you know clean your room. And And I thought, hey, why can't we fix this? Why can't we like create a better Roomba that doesn't like break so easily? So I created this uh, company called Roombafied, um, where we would modify Roombas and make them better and sell them back to Roomba's customers. And so I would kind of buy these like relatively inexpensive Roombas at Costco. I found that that was kind of like the best place to source them from where you get the kind of most bang for your buck. And then I'd make them better, resell them to the customers and, you know, made a little bit of money doing that. It was a fun early forte into business. Uh, I think I did that like freshman or sophomore year of college um, while I was still going to school. And uh, we ended up getting a cease and desist letter from iRobot, the company that uh, sells Roomba. So um, had to shut that one down. But it definitely, I fortunately, Soon after getting that cease and desist, uh, iRobot made a lot of the same changes that we made to the product. They made those changes to the base Roomba product. So I, I'd like to think that I was maybe a little bit of a catalyst to, to getting iRobot to improve their product and make it a little bit more durable. Oh, that's awesome. Very cool. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm curious just with your, your broad interest in entrepreneurship and as we kind of work our way towards, towards every key, like how are you navigating the idea maze, right? You know, there's millions of problems to solve, Roombas being one of them, right? But how is it that you come to the the founding insight, I guess, for for every key? Like what what are the questions that you're asking at this point? What what were you trying to what what was the problem, I guess, that you had identified and, and how are you thinking about just the these problems? Good question. I, I think there's a little bit of a pattern in the way that I think about business ideas. I, I think I'm often choosing business ideas that are in areas where other companies aren't already solving these problems. And in a lot of cases, it's because they uh, don't have a financial incentive to solve those problems. So in the case of Roombas, I you know came up with this idea for making a Roomba more durable because it wasn't necessarily something that iRobot wanted to do because they make more money off of selling more Roombas. So it was a great opportunity for me. When I was a little bit later in college, I think junior, senior year, I bought and sold iPads and other Apple devices and resold them to other countries that didn't have these products as early as we did here in the US. And you can sell an iPad for like twice as much money. You can buy it for, you know, 500, 600 bucks here in the US and resell it for a thousand, one thousand, two hundred, like double the price in other countries uh, for the first couple months where it's not available in those countries. So sort of finding these, uh, I guess you could call them sort of gray markets, like places where you're allowed to play within these markets, but the big companies out there don't want you to necessarily be playing in these markets. And Apple doesn't want you to be reselling their iPads uh, internationally because they're not selling them themselves internationally, but what are they going to do to stop you? You know, there's nothing illegal about it. So I think that was kind of where I got that early 
success in business was finding these uh, gray markets here. And with every key, I guess it's a little bit of the same, right? I mean, I, we're solving a problem that, uh, you know, is just an age old problem of passwords and keys being insecure and inconvenient. We were in this entrepreneurship class during my senior year in college. And the professor asked us to come up with any kind of business idea we wanted. It could be a product or a service. It could uh, make money, but more importantly, kind of make an impactful change on the world, really solve a problem for people. And uh, we came up with this crazy idea at the time for a wristband that would replace your passwords, replace your keys. So you wear this wristband, it would be able to unlock your phone and your laptop and your tablet, the door of your house, your car door, your bike lock, all these different devices, and log into all your website accounts when you're nearby lock them down when you walk away. And we presented this idea to the class kind of thinking, hey, wouldn't this be cool if Apple or Google or Microsoft were to do something like this? And fortunately for us, the professor, Walt Secura, came up to us, shook our hands and said, guys, you should do this. I want to actually invest some money into this to make this a real company. And that's where we were like, holy cow, we've got a once in a lifetime opportunity. Here. Let's, uh, let's go for it. And so at, at that point, what comes next, right? It wasn't something necessarily you were considering prior, you know, how, how do you go about taking this idea then and, and working to make it a reality? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm definitely like a little bit of a like, hey, let's get something. Let's get stuff done. Let's, uh, you know, I definitely love to be a go-getter and kind of take that initiative. So I started to really connect with people within the business community here in Cleveland and specifically at Case. Uh, there's a gentleman, Bob Sopko. I think you've had him on a, a previous episode of this show. Uh, absolute godsend to the Cleveland and specifically Case, you know, entrepreneurial community. So really happy to have been connected with Bob. And Bob suggested, hey, Chris, why don't you, um, you know, you've got all this energy when you pitch the company, I, I often take a piece of paper out of my pocket and show all the passwords that I have on that paper and I'll set it on fire just to kind of show off <laughs> this problem that you have. Here, I'll go ahead and the audio listeners won't be able to see this, but I have a piece of paper here. It's got all my passwords on it. These are so broken and outdated. I've got the same password for everything. And so at every key, we are getting rid of that broken and outdated access control and replacing it with something better. It turns out that when you do cool shit like that uh, during business plan competitions. Uh, you can raise you know, a few bucks for, for your startup. So we ended up doing a few uh, business pitch competitions specifically for student-ran startups. And uh, that helped us get the initial funding that we needed to move the product forward. That's incredible. For, for everyone listening, he literally just, he did light the thing on fire and it was yeah. had one password. <laughs> and now, uh, and usually it burns up a little bit faster than that, so I can actually like kind of smell a little bit of burnt hair on my uh, my beard here, so I'm going to have to take care of that. I appreciate the, the commitment to the to the cause there. Because it, it is a, a real problem. I think it's one that, that probably everyone at this point can personally kind of, kind of ident- identify with. When you, when you were in those early stages, what in your mind was kind of the first big break? What, what were you trying to, to validate uh, at that point? Um, and, and how are you thinking about where can we get traction uh, initially? Yeah, so that's a great question because, you know, we're starting this company that's got a pretty serious level of complexity to it. You know, this every key company would have to create uh, apps for iOS and Android and Mac OS and Windows and all your major browser extensions. And uh, it seemed like quite a challenge to overcome. And we knew that we needed to raise some venture capital to get that done. I, I'm, I've got a computer science degree myself, but I can't code to save my life. So really needed to hire some people much smarter than me to uh, really bring the product to market. So it made logical sense in my mind to prove to the venture capitalists of the world that there's a market willing to buy this thing, right? So we went on Kickstarter and Indiegogo, uh, did a little bit of crowdfunding to kind of prove out that there is a market for this and to get some initial pre-orders and some initial funding for the business to kind of get it off the ground and get the ball rolling. And, uh, you know, it turned out that people really love the product on those platforms. We actually raised more money than any other company in this category on both Kickstarter and Indiegogo. So uh, it was uh, it was a success. And we were able to then take that and uh, raise some early venture capital from uh, Inkwell Venture Capital and a few others um, based off of that initial crowdfunding success. This initial crowdfunding and venture capital that you were raising was towards the, I get what you would call like the MVP. Because often with like the, the crowdfunding, it's, it is often a, a pre-buy in a lot of ways. And so there's like the expectation that 
all those contributing are are going to get the first go of of what it is that you guys are putting together, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. On on crowdfunding, you're basically pre-ordering a product. Um, you're usually paying a lower price than what the uh, retail customers buying in the future will be paying. So you're getting kind of an incentive to get on earlier. And obviously, a lot of people just love to be one of the first customers of a of a cool company. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to be one of the first people to buy an iPhone from Apple, for example? Would be a really cool thing to uh, be able to brag about and everything to your friends. So. I think that's uh, where people were coming from, and yeah, fortunately there were enough people to uh, to support the idea that uh, that we got it successfully funded, and that helped us kind of build out the initial technology. It definitely ended up being, if you followed our crowdfunding journey at all, you probably know that it wasn't a smooth road. We certainly had our fair share of challenges. It took us uh, many months, uh, even many you know multiple years longer than we had originally anticipated to actually deliver uh, these products to people. And fortunately, people were very happy once the product was out. But there were some dark days. There were some dark days where we were, uh, you know, it had just so many negative comments in our Kickstarter page, like, hey, why isn't this thing out yet? The estimated, estimated delivery date was months ago. What's happening? And fortunately, all of that is now in our past and people are happy with the products that they're using. But there was, uh, it was a struggle for a while to, to really... Yeah. Uh, you're setting these expectations and then maybe not meeting those expectations. And that's uh, as common for most crowdfunding projects. I think something like 85% of crowdfunding projects don't deliver on time. So it's not like there was anything unusual uh, about uh, our cadence there, but it certainly, uh, it, it certainly was a struggle. What, what were some of those challenges that, that you encountered at that point? Yeah, so I think we didn't really anticipate how tough it was going to be to make Bluetooth and security reliable on all different devices, right? So for us to, our company name is Every Key, and for us to really live up to that name, to truly be your Every Key, Every Key needs to work on all iOS and Android phones, all Windows and Mac computers, and then pretty much all websites as well. And that sounds simple on the surface, but it's incredibly challenging to actually make that happen. So, for example, on Android, you've got different phone manufacturers, Samsung and Google themselves, and you know all, all these different Android uh, phone manufacturers creating their Bluetooth stacks a little bit differently. So you find out that your code that worked really great on Samsung maybe doesn't work so, so great on Google Pixel devices, and you have to kind of rewrite a lot of stuff. And there was a whole lot of that. There was a whole lot of, like, we made the product perfect, for some devices, and then we find out all these differences between different devices, and we had to kind of go back to the drawing board and rewrite things. There was a lot of that in those early days, and there still is a lot of that. I mean, unfortunately, that's still a challenge that we and any other company that's working with some of these APIs has to deal with. Things like security protocols, unlocking a device is not something, I could probably count the number of companies that do that on on my hand, right? So these aren't very well-documented APIs, they're really hard to work with, they're not super well-supported by the operating systems. So there was a lot of uh, trial and error uh, in those early days to, to really make things reliable and secure. Obviously, security is our number one priority. So we wanted to make sure that every decision we were making was going to have a positive impact on the security of our product as well. And there, there's a whole, I mean, bu- building a, any company is, is difficult software, but there, there's a whole hardware component to what you were doing as well, right? Yep. How did you figure that part of the equation out as you were you know, building the software to, to integrate with all these systems? How did you kind of navigate the physical nature of the other side of it? Yeah, yeah. So, so fortunately, um, one of these business pitch competitions that we happened to pitch at, it was called the Magnet Prototech uh, Challenge. And uh, this was many years ago. This was actually even before the Kickstarter campaign launched. We pitched in this uh, pitch competition. Um, there were some fantastic companies um, in that pitch competition. We were very lucky to actually uh, come home with first place in that competition. And that matched us with, uh, or that included that first place uh, win at Prototech included $10,000 of free design services with a company here in town called SmartShape. Um, it's uh, ran by this guy, Mike, who's just a brilliant entrepreneur himself. He's actually, I'm sure you've probably had him on your program. If, if you haven't, you definitely should. Um, Mike's incredible. He's actually walked all the way across America, like all the way from New York City to San Francisco. Really, really great guy. We started working with SmartShape 
shape. They kind of coached us through how to manage the industrial design and not just coached us through, but they completely managed the process themselves, the industrial design and manufacturing of the product. So they introduced us to a lot of different manufacturers here in the Cleveland area. And we kind of chose the, the ones that we liked the best and made the most sense uh, pricing and business wise. And uh, we were kind of off to the races. So fortunately, that was not really much of a challenge for us. Manufacturing always has its challenges here and there. And obviously, we're having a lot of challenges now with supply chain issues, as every company is. So manufacturing is never a non-issue, but it's certainly a less of an issue compared to the software uh, challenges that we've had to overcome. Got it. So you're, you're able to, to navigate the challenges and, and ultimately deliver for those early folks. What comes next? Like, how do you think about go-to-market strategy at that point and the, the path forward? Yeah, yeah. So obviously, we're really, we started this company to build a huge brand around security, right? I want people to see our, the name every key and our logo, the EK logo, and to really know that that's synonymous with great security, similar to where you see the Apple logo, and you know that that's synonymous with great user experience and great design. I want the same thing for our company. So obviously, we wanted to really get the name out there in a big way. We've ran a lot of uh, advertising through Facebook and Instagram and Google and different things like that. We've gotten into some retail. We're in uh, everything from Best Buy to Office Max, Office Depot, Newegg, a bunch of uh, different uh, micro center, a bunch of different uh, retail chains out there as well. So that's been really helpful in kind of spreading the, the brand name to consumers. And that was the original vision of the company was to really like target consumers, your everyday consumer. This is something that I wanted. I built this for myself and for everybody else, every Joe, Dick and Harry out there that has passwords and wants to have some help managing them. But through that effort, ironically, kind of what we found was that consumers aren't even the best market for this product. Really, it's enterprises. The companies out there are really, they're, they're the ones that are losing $2 trillion per year due to password mismanagement. They're the ones that have entire IT departments who obsess on a daily basis over the security of the company and would you know have some serious losses if the company was hacked. And oftentimes, hacking's they almost always come back to poor password management. You hear about the pipeline hack. You hear about these cryptocurrency hacks that happen all the time. Usually it's just somebody using a shitty password and that's what somebody uses to, to gain access. So we realize that that is a good market for us is to target these uh, large enterprises. And so now we've, you know, in a way pivoted the business and have started to focus on selling to large enterprises and to government as well. We actually were just selected for a $1.25 million uh, contract with the U.S. Air Force to solve some of the problems that they have. And LG, we have a, a big deal with them. We're under NDA, so we can't talk too much about it, but there's a pretty awesome thing going on with LG and us right now. And a bunch of other companies are starting to uh, work with us to solve the password problems that they have. It makes a lot of sense to me, just circling back to what I, I, I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, my exposure to just government. And I, I it, it, most of the the challenges come from kind of the basic security fundamentals, password management and things on top of that, like 2FA. <laughs> um, so it, it's not surprising to me ultimately that there was a, a shift perhaps in the direction of, of the company. From a positioning standpoint, it's a very different process to, to sell to enterprise. Was the, was from a security standpoint, was the product ready for that? Or did you have to make different kind of investments into product offering and, and marketing and strategy. So definitely the sales process changed completely. I mean, shifting from uh, with consumers, you're advertising on Facebook and Instagram and uh, Google and such. And uh, obviously with enterprises, there's an almost totally different approach. I mean, th some of those tactics can still work and can still drive some uh, inbound sales leads. But in general, you're kind of also managing relationships with IT departments and with CISOs, chief information security officers, and reaching out to some of these people to try to get them interested. So it is a very very different sales process um, and government is a totally different sales process from that. Um, but fortunately, uh, from a product standpoint, we really did build this product to be incredibly secure from day one. The way that every key works is that the encryption key that encrypts all of your passwords is stored only on your devices. So there's no way for somebody to hack our central database and have 
all of your passwords in plain text. It just simply doesn't work like that. Um, they would have to have that encryption key, which only resides on your devices. And we've gone through security audits, even back when this was really a consumer-focused product. A lot of our early Kickstarter and Indiegogo backers really pushed us to make this as secure as possible and to go through security audits where a third party is coming in and taking a look at it and saying, hey, this is secure, this is not secure. And fortunately for us, we passed every single one of those security audits with the best score you can possibly have, which we're so happy with because even the biggest and best companies out there like Apple and Google only get the best possible score about 20% of the time, but we've only gotten the best possible score and we've gotten about four or five times now. So security is our number one. It's our North Star. It's something that we've always really taken very seriously. And fortunately, there hasn't been a huge amount of changes uh, needed to be made to the security. There's certifications. There's uh, some companies look for you to you know, have certain uh, certifications in order to go into their enterprise in order for them to use this in an enterprise or government setting. So those are changes that we've needed to make. And we are applying for a lot of those certifications and have started to get some of those now. But the security itself, the general platform really has been remarkably unchanged since day one. And how, I guess, have you thought about competition? Because from the perspective of the consumer market, I never had come across too many, but I feel like the the companies that I am aware of uh, on that side of it, the the last passes, the the UB keys, the uh, there's there's a bunch of them. But my my and this is just anecdotally, but my understanding is maybe a lot of those companies started with enterprise and expanded more into into the consumer realm. And so, how have you gone about you know thinking about competition and and your own kind of competitive differentiation? Yeah, well, and I think one of the great things about coming from the consumer space was that user experience, making this really easy to use and fun to use, has been something that we have obsessed over since day one. You wouldn't believe how many hours and days we've spent in meetings just talking about the most small details of the product, everything. Like if we can reduce something from two button clicks to one button click, we'll spend hours finding ways to do that and finding ways to optimize the user experience to make things as easy to use and as simple as possible. And I think that that background of coming from the consumer world and having to make a fantastic, phenomenal user experience is something that we get to take into enterprise and enterprises still care about that as well. They still want their employees to have a good user experience. They still want their employees to be saving time and not having to, you know, deal with some clunky product that's hard to use. So I think that that's been something that's really benefited us. And I think just being a little bit more ambitious in the competition has really benefited us as well. I mean, a lot of those products that you've talked about, uh, YubiKey, OnePassword, LastPass, you know, they're great products, but they're very limited. They're, they're, you know, the latter, they're just password managers. Uh, the former, it's really just a kind of, uh, you know, kind of hardware security key that really has to be like plugged in and everything. Every key is kind of a combination of all of these, right? So it's both a hardware security key and a password manager all in one. So it's a little bit more ambitious than these competitor products. It's doing a lot more than any of them are. And then it's also fully wireless. We actually have a uh, an issued patent on one-to-many uh, wireless uh, authentication. So kind of gives us a step up and a, a uh, an advantage over the competition to be a fully wireless device. We wanted to it goes back to that user experience. We want to make sure that people don't have to take this thing out of their pocket and plug it in to, uh, to to make it work. We wanted it to just be fully wireless, work over Bluetooth. And I talked about the original product um, in the initial conversation here as being like a wristband, but it's also, um, it's more than that at this point. It's a kind of key fob form factor and you can put it on a key ring and uh, still wear it as a wristband. And very soon here, we'll actually be coming out with a, uh, an app only version of this where you can actually, you won't even need a hardware product anymore. You'll be able to just use your phone as an every key to connect to everything else. So, so building on that, I know You've also done some interesting things from a, a marketing perspective. And I know at some point in, in your company's history, I had created a, a partnership uh, of sorts with John McAfee, who I know has a, a bit of a notoriety about him. I, I'd love to, to kind of hear the, the story and, and thinking that went into that and, and, all, and the impact of, of that, that relationship as well. Yeah, yeah. John is uh, was a fun guy to work with. That's for sure. We're really uh, sad um, <laughs> that he's uh, he's gone now. But yeah, John, uh, the the John McAfee story really it stems from Kickstarter and Indiegogo. When we first launched the product, um, a lot of people were talking about how 
hey, I want to buy one of these. This sounds like a great idea, a great product. I want one, um, but I'm not sure if I can trust this random company called EveryKey out of Cleveland, Ohio that I've never heard of before with all my <laughs> passwords, right? <laughs> and right. it's a fair, <laughs> very fair you know, objection for people to have for sure. I mean, who am I to, to trust with, with all your passwords? I'm some uh, random person you've never heard of. So we wanted to attach ourselves, attach our brand with a big name in the industry, right? It could be a company uh, partnership or it could be a person that is well known for creating great security products. And John's name, John McAfee, the founder of McAfee Antivirus was literally number one on the list. Like we literally came up with a list right. of 20 different <laughs> and companies we could reach out to. And John's name was number one. And we thought we'd have to get to number 15 or 16 before anybody even returned any of our calls, right? But fortunately for us, uh, we emailed John and he replies back like an hour later saying, uh, Chris, this is the coolest effing thing I've ever seen. I want to be involved. I want to I wanna- I want to do a product video with me involved and promote this product. Can you come down to Nashville, Tennessee a week from now and film this product video with me? And we're like, well, hell, that was so much easier than we thought it would be. <laughs> we kind of, you know, put together a last minute kind of product video script for, for John to promote the product and got in a, uh, got in a, our cars and drove down to Nashville with the production company to film the video. And uh, yeah, as they say, the, re- the rest is history. John adding his name to the company and promoting it was just so influential for us. It took us from this kind of no-name startup company that people didn't know if they could trust or not into a, um, you know, becoming a household name for security, something that people are beginning to know and trust. And if anything else, it certainly it got the conversation away from is this secure and into a little bit more of productive conversation about the features of the product and um, how people could use the product and everything. And obviously there was a little bit, you know, you mentioned controversial uh, history of John McAfee. Obviously, yes, yes. Uh, the fact that uh, he's a bit of a controversial figure. So I think that that only benefited us, honestly, because it kept the conversation going. It kept people talking about us and talking about John. And anytime that we posted, you know, a Facebook ad uh, with John's name and face and holding every key, um, there would be some conversation around that. So for better <laughs> It happened and it definitely helped the company. It definitely helped us build that credibility and get people talking about us. Yeah, no, it's, it's an incredible story. And I, I think just it also speaks to the, the value of a, a well-intentioned and thought-out cold outreach. I just feel like I'm always surprised the degree to which those are, people are receptive and respond <laughs> to things yeah. that you think they, they may not it just takes reaching out. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it just takes that that simple reach out. We do a lot of cold outreach at every key, and sometimes I'm surprised at how many people reply to those kind of emails. If they're really tailored, if they're very targeted, you know, you, you'll get a response more more often than not if if you're really good about it. So as you're building this business and transitioning from the consumer side to the enterprise side, uh, thinking about you know perhaps not a transition away from hardware, but more the incorporation of the software side of things. At what point do you you have to, and do you have to, go back to the markets to raise additional capital to kind of scale the the business? Yeah, yeah, we've uh, we've continued to raise money since the you know crowdfunding campaigns. Well, yeah, so we kind of uh, we went through this accelerator program called the Alchemist Accelerator, which is uh, supposedly one of the best B two B or enterprise accelerators. This was right around the time where we were starting to make that shift from consumer over to enterprise uh, focus. And uh, through the Alchemist Accelerator, we went through the demo day process where we got up on stage. This was pre COVID and got to um, you know pitch to hundreds of uh, maybe even thousands of, of investors all at a single point in time, and they uh, showed interest in us. And we were you know the the cool kids on the block for, for like a hot minute. And that was a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, that helped us raise, you know, a decent amount of money. We raised a few million through that process and have continued to use the alchemist connection to our advantage to raise more money for the company through that venture. Um, man, it's, uh, it, it just really kind of made me realize how much 
uh, this was all pre-COVID, of course, but how much investors really wanted to invest in startups kind of near them and in very areas that are very familiar to them, right? So um, being a tech startup from Cleveland, Ohio, didn't appeal to some of these investors as much as a, you know, a, a startup that's in their industry in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, for example. So that created a whole new set of challenges of our geolocation being something that would dissuade investors from investing in us. And we had to kind of navigate that carefully. And, um, you know, I would spend more than six months of the year out in Silicon Valley at that time. So we would start to uh, have a kind of mini office, basically just an apartment that I was renting out there for the time period. And we would start to call that our headquarters, which, uh, you know, is definitely kind of, but you kind of, you had to do what you had to do um, to get the money in the door. And that was uh, one strategy that we found to be pretty effective. And yeah, so just a lot of uh, a lot of that kind of stuff, just a lot of uh, knocking on doors, hearing a lot of no's, you know, a lot of people, of course, uh, you know, we still had to be upfront about, you know, our kind of main office being here in Cleveland, having most of the employees here in Cleveland. Some people would uh, say no for that reason or for many other reasons, you know, the fact that we were uh, very still consumer focused at the time or a lot of our revenue had been generated from consumers, even though we were starting to target enterprises, obviously was a, a bit of a turnoff to some investors, but we found some, some really open-minded investors that there really love the company, you know, people like uh, Greg Kidd, one of the early co-founders of Ripple, one of the largest cryptocurrencies out there. I think they've got like a $25 billion market cap or something. People like Marjorie Hsu, the former VP of Verizon, uh, and Kurt Peterson, the founder of this company called Cephia that sold for a few billion. Uh, and every piece of US mail is screened for anthrax through their systems. Anyway, a bunch of different cool people like that uh, got behind the company and uh, very happy to, you know, have them as investors and advisors and helping us move in the right direction. Yeah. And just taking a, a quick detour, because uh, I'm curious your perspective on this. I mean, that that narrative just doesn't hold the same weight and gravity to it today that it, it did pre-COVID, right? With the, the nature of geographic proximity and how, how have you seen that change and, and what's what's your kind of perspective on that from a Cleveland side? Yeah, yeah. It's it's really hard to change these investors' minds sometimes. But at the start, when I first started raising money, I was very upfront with people about, hey, we're a Cleveland company, and that's a good thing. You know, it means that our cost of having an office is significantly lower than if we were in the Bay Area. And it means that, you know, we can pay employees less than we pay in the Bay Area. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we're taking advantage of them. They live better lives here in Cleveland because the cost of living is so much lower. And there was all these benefits to being a Cleveland company. And I was like, wake up investors, come on, like see these benefits and, you know, invest in companies like ours. And at the time they were super close minded to that. So it's really interesting to see the huge shift. We see now the opposite in today's world. We see Silicon Valley investors saying, we don't invest in Silicon Valley. We only invest in places like Cleveland, Ohio. And that is just so satisfying to see that, um, you know, they're finally starting to open their eyes to it. They're finally starting, you know, unfortunately took this, you know, deadly illness to, to make things, to open their eyes to it. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, they are starting to realize that, hey, Silicon Valley is not the only place in the world where people are building great companies. Great companies can be built anywhere. Yeah, no, I, I think there's, it's an exciting development for, for sure. W- what does every key look like today? What, what's kind of an overview of the, the company and, and also the, the organization I- itself? Yeah, yeah. So um, things are going really well for us. I mean, we've started to land a lot of big government contracts, a lot of big uh, enterprise deals. It's definitely not the initial vision of the company, right? It definitely wasn't. We're not selling to consumers quite as much as we once were. We're still running some ads and still getting some consumers on board. And oftentimes that does lead to enterprise sales. We are super focused on selling to businesses at this point. We're doing a lot more remote work recently. Um, we only work in the office one day per week at this point. Uh, who knows if we'll even have an office, you know, a year from now. Um, that's definitely up for debate. You know, pretty similar to a lot of other tech companies. Uh, when COVID started, we made a lot of the same changes that, that other companies made and uh, just being a lot more open to hiring kind of everywhere in the world and trying to get a more diverse, uh, you know, set of people working on the product and, um, and selling and everything. So you, you mentioned the, the present state perhaps has deviated a little bit from the original vision, but what does, what does success look like for you when you, you kind of project out going forward? What, what is the impact that you hope to have as, a, as an organization? 
Yeah, I mean, success to me would really be, I, I, I built this company because I'm obsessed with building an awesome brand. I really want people to say, see our name, the name every key and the EK logo, you know, our flagship logo. And I want them to see that brand and know that that is just synonymous with great security. I want people to see that and know that that's the apple of the security world. If you're asking what's the end game here, I mean, I guess that would really lead itself to an IPO, an initial public offering. I would love to take this company public on the stock market. I realize how low the chances are of that happening, and I realize how you know absurdly difficult that is. But I don't care. I'm still gonna go for that. That's still gonna be my goal at all times. And you know, if we got a really awesome acquisition offer someday that is hard to say no to, maybe I'll be eating these words, and uh, people will be sending me this podcast and being like, "Oh, I told you so." But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think if we're solving problems for people, making people's lives easier, making people's lives more secure and building a great brand while doing it, then that's that's success in my eyes. I want to go a little deeper on on the the brand side specifically. Like, how is it that you build a good brand and what does that actually mean? I think it, it all goes down to, well, there's the graphic design aspect of it, of uh, obsessing over every little detail. And then it's also about what your company stands for, right? So in our case, I, I guess when it comes to what we stand for, certainly we stand for great user experience, phenomenal user experience, and really great security, right? We're kind of the intersection of convenience and security. So we want to make sure that everything within our ecosystem, everything from our website that you land on when you click on one of our ads or when you first hear about our company or find it on Google, that website needs to be super easy to use. It's got to be very sleek. It's got to be intentional with everything from the colors to the fonts to the spacing of objects to the animations that we're using on the page. Everything's got to be incredibly intentional, very well thought out, very slick, very modern, very new age, and very clean. Uh, and then we want to make sure that we're really getting across the messaging that we want to get across. We want to make sure that people understand that, hey, security is our North Star. Security is something that's you know not just incredibly important to us, but it is the most important thing to this product. And when you buy an every key product, you're buying something incredibly secure that has been security audited and that's using, you know, the best encryption and the best security standards that are available. Yeah, it really just kind of comes down to just all of that, all of the, all of the process of building uh, something that you're really proud of. Uh, I think a lot of people we work with a lot of different like ad agencies that will like put together these ads and some of them, not, not the one that we're working with currently, I, I'm super happy with our current ad agency, but some of the ones in the past, they, you know, they'll put out some questionable material that you're just like, man, you, it looks like that was just like thrown together in like five minutes by a, by a mm -hmm. seventh grade. What's, what's going on here? You know, and, like, I just um, I'm just so passionate about this brand and what we're building that like sometimes it'll almost like um, like raise my blood pressure if I see something that's like trying to represent our brand, but is doing it incorrectly. Like if there's not enough padding or if the colors are off or if uh, the logo is like not crisp and looking good and like plenty of margin around it and everything to make it look nice and premium. So those kind of things, I just obsess over them and we literally spend hours on like making sure that this stuff is all very buttoned up and that, uh, and a lot of it comes down to also just like surveying people and asking people what they like too. Cause right. I mean, you're, we're not just building this brand for ourselves. We're building it for, for other people to be impressed by it and to, to make sure that we're getting across the messages that we want to get across. So we'll spend hours, lots of money, lots of time um, on surveys asking people, hey, what do you, the most mundane of details, things like, you know, which shade of blue do you like better? Those kind of things are things that we just, uh, I think a lot of companies don't even care about them. They'll just go into Photoshop and they'll just choose a color, right? For us, we spend hours on this kind of stuff. Yeah. As you reflect on, on the journey here so far, what are some of the things that surprised you most as you, you went about building and scaling every key? And flip side of that question, you know, thinking towards the future, what has you most excited over the next year and change? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think the 
the main thing that kind of surprised me is how freaking long it will take. Everything takes longer than you expect it to. And I know everybody says that, but you don't realize it until you're really in the thick of it. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's true what they say. It takes 10 years to build an overnight success. And man, is that true? You know, it's uh, you watch these movies about like Facebook and Apple and how quickly they rose to power and everything. But what you don't see is the years and years of hard work and blood, sweat, and tears put into building those companies and a lot of the failure that, that happens along the way. You know, our path to success has not been, uh, you know, it's been a bumpy road. It, it has not been all sunshine and rainbows. We've had a lot of uh, roadblocks that have gotten in our way. There's been a lot of times, I, I can probably count, you know, five to 10 times where I felt like, hey, we might not be in business a month from now. You know, this might not be a viable business anymore. And I'm not sure if we're going to even still be around. So those kind of challenges uh, take a big mental toll on you. And I think as long as you just keep going, then you're going to be successful. And a lot of the times, I think the successful companies are really just the they're the last men standing, last men and women standing, and just the people that continue to put in the hard work, even when it felt like the chips are down. Uh, a lot of people give up. You know, a lot of people give up way too easily. Where do you find that that resilience, that keep going mentality? It's a good question. I don't. I don't know. Um, I guess it might just be kind of like instilled in me by my parents, possibly. Um, I remember back to like elementary school where me and my mom would like she she wanted my you know papers like for class to be like perfect, right? She wanted, like, if we got a, an assignment where you had to write, uh, you know, a couple paragraphs about something, she wanted that to be absolutely perfect. So I, I remember all these nights where we would like sit at the computer and I'd be on this like spinny chair and she'd be kind of in front of the computer doing some of the typing. And she would like really just continue to, we, we wouldn't stop until it was perfect. We wouldn't stop mm. the essays until they were absolutely perfect down to every last word. Uh, if there was a specific word in the essay that didn't seem perfect, it didn't seem to fit correctly, or it wasn't quite as perfect as it could be, she would just keep, mm, Chris, can you think of something better? Can you think of a better, uh, you know, word to be using here? Or how could we make that? What, what, what should the punctuation be in this sense and everything? And she would just obsess over those details. And at the time it felt so freaking annoying. I'm just like, can we please just go to bed? Call this a night. It's going to get an A already. This is the perfect paper, you know? And <laughs> I think that like her constantly just going at me to make it perfect really instilled in me something that I carry with me to this day of, uh, you know, just this constant obsession to make things absolutely perfect. And I think that was, uh, you know, on hindsight, a, a good thing. And I think that's, that's the case for a lot of things that your parents do. You know, they, they, they feel pretty shitty in the moment, but at, at the end of the day, once you've grown up, you come to appreciate them. <laughs> Yes, yes. Much appreciation <laughs> for, for the parents. Just circling back to the, the, the second part of that question, when you think about you know, what's coming next, what, oh, yeah. what, what has you most excited? Man, there's, I, I guess maybe part of the reason I didn't answer it is because there's just so many cool things that, that are coming down the pipeline, right? I'm just so excited about, like, man, this, this like, military contract that we have right now with the Air Force. I mean, right now, the Air Force believe it or not, they're like writing their passwords on sticky notes and putting them around the rims of their monitors. This is a U.S. Air Force. This is like the people that are hired to serve and protect our country. And they're just writing their freaking passwords on sticky notes. It's insane. So things like that, things like solving these big problems for, you know, big, big organizations is just something that I've gotten really excited about. New features to the product, things like, you know, I, I don't know how much I should be talking about it publicly, but there's so many cool features. I guess I'll talk about the one that I've already kind of hinted at a little bit, using your phone as an every key, right? Today, we have a hardware product. Hardware kind of sucks. It's not great from a venture capital standpoint. No, you know, venture capitalists would obviously prefer to invest in a software company rather than a hardware company. There's supply chain issues that are continuing to be a problem and probably will continue to be a problem for the foreseeable future. So offering a software only solution will not only solve a lot of those problems, but it's also going to solve a big objection that some of our customers ha have had, which is, hey, I don't want to carry another hardware device on me. I'd prefer to just use my phone as my ever key. So that's something that I'm super excited about. And we are so close to having that done. And I can't wait to, uh, to release that because I'm sure that that's going to have a huge, huge uh, positive impact on, on the company and customers are going to love it. Mm. Oh, that's, that's super exciting. 
just want to bookend the the conversation here. We asked the the same closing question uh, that we we do to, to everyone on the show, which tying yeah. it back to Cleveland is for not necessarily your favorite thing in Cleveland, but for something that other folks may not necessarily know about, a hidden gem. Okay, so I've been really interested for the past few years in urban exploring. It's where you find like kind of abandoned buildings and you kind of explore them. You see all the, um, you know, something that was once a, you know, huge, uh, you know, building that had thousands of people in it that was a you know real uh center for commerce or something and is now you know gone to the forest and there's now you know uh graffiti and moss growing everywhere and it's just crazy to see that you know that 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 contrast there so i would say uh urban exploring in cleveland is pretty awesome there's the warner swayze observatory um pretty close to the case western reserve campus case actually owned a little bit of history on this it's an observatory that uh, case owned at one point and because of air pollution it no longer made sense to be in its uh, current location so they kind of abandoned it and it's now just gone to the trees so it's this huge building really you know amazing you know multi-million dollar building out there for anybody to explore and this is not legal advice. I don't think you're like technically supposed <laughs> to be exploring this, although I've, you know, people do it so often that I don't think there's a huge risk, but again, not legal advice, uh, explore at your own risk, of course. Um, and then also the, uh, the old Cleveland aquarium is, is another, uh, uh hidden gem in the urban exploring, uh, area. It's uh, you kind of got to like crawl in through this like window and there's, uh, I, I don't know why, I don't know if it was once used as like a police station or something, but there's all these like old police reports there and stuff, which are just like kind of tables, <laughs> like read through them and shit, and it's uh, kind of crazy. So um, I, I love some of the urban exploring opportunities here in Cleveland. Oh, that's awesome! Again, not not illegal advice, but yeah, very again, good. not advice. <laughs> Don't do this. Don't go to these locations. <laughs> but <laughs> well, Chris, really, really appreciate uh, you coming on and and sharing your story and and the work you're you're doing with with every key. I, I think it's it's really cool what you built and seeing kind of the, the progress you've made since since I remember first encountering you guys a, a few years ago. So really appreciate yeah. it. Thanks so much, Jeff. I, I really appreciate you having me on. It's always fun to to do podcasts like this. It's fun to kind of really take a step back and see like where the business has gone and some of the progress that we've made. Cause when you're really heads deep into it, sometimes it feels like a struggle and sometimes you feel like you're not making a progress. But it's things like this that really make me love where we've gotten as a business and really make me appreciate the, you know, the team that's behind me and uh, everything that we've been able to accomplish. So th thanks so much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, absolutely. If folks have anything that they would want to follow up with you about, what would be the, the best way for them to do so? Yeah. Um, I mean, you're welcome to contact me over email. That's probably the best channel. Uh, it's just Chris, C-H-R-I-S dot Wentz, W-E-N-T-Z at everykey.com. Amazing. Well, thank you again, Chris. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.